There is a concept mostly used in a military sense. We're going to use it in a golf sense today. But it's chiefly military, and it's called Massive Retaliation. And it was formally named for the first time in a speech by John Foster Dulles. He was Eisenhower's Secretary of State. There's an airport in Washington, D.C. named after him. And it was a curious time in history when he spoke. This is 1954, when the Soviet Union, obviously America's premier enemy, did have nuclear weapons, but what they didn't have is something called second strike capability. And what that means is that, okay, let's say there's a massive nuclear attack on your country. Can you then, in retaliation, fire nuclear weapons of your own? And the way you do that is by having nukes in other countries or on submarines, things like that, where if you get wiped out domestically, you're still able to inflict severe and unacceptable damage on the people who did it to you. And the essence of that and why you want it is protection. If you have second strike capability, nobody's going to mess with you because even if they succeed, then their capital, their cities, they're going to get bombed. Their people are going to get hurt. And if two enemy countries both have this second strike capability, that is mutually assured destruction, where basically if either side starts a nuclear war, you're both going down. Now, at the time when Dulles was speaking, again, it was 1954. The Soviet Union didn't have that yet. So he introduced this concept of massive retaliation. And here's what he said, quote, There is no local defense which alone will contain the mighty land power of the communist world. Local defenses must be reinforced by the further deterrent of massive retaliatory power. A potential aggressor must know that he cannot always prescribe battle conditions that suit him. End quote. And this was very controversial because... The implication is that if you attack us or our allies in a traditional military sense, guess what? The response is going to be intense. It's not going to be proportional, and it might include nuclear weapons. So back off. This was only possible to even think about when the Soviet Union lacked that second strike capability. That ended in the 1960s. You don't hear much about massive retaliation after that. But it shows you what a nuclear imbalance looked like when it existed and the kind of ideas being bandied about in that short time. Now, when we do historical parallels to golf, obviously we're doing it a little bit tongue-in-cheek. It's meant as a kind of fun analogy because, you know, what's more fun than the concept of nuclear war, right? But the subject of today's podcast, which is the 1974 U.S. Open at Winged Foot, the private club in Mamaroneck, New York, most recently hosted the U.S. Open in 2020 when Bryson DeChambeau won, that 74 Open is one of the hardest, most brutal U.S. Opens ever. And the story of it and how it came to be that way drew me almost irresistibly to John Foster Dulles and this idea of massive retaliation. A year earlier, in 1973, Johnny Miller did something at Oakmont that nobody had ever done before at a U.S. Open or at a major championship, which is that he came into the last round and shot a 63 to win the thing. Now back in the middle of the 15th fairway, a sensational Johnny Miller out of about 160 yards. Played 14 holes, he had seven birdies and seven pars. And, oh, look at that. Oh, dear. What a round this is coming up here. If you follow golf at all, you already know that story. It is probably, or, you know, maybe definitely the greatest final round in major championship history. It's hard to imagine anything topping it. And what makes it so remarkable to me is that this was not an easy course at Oakmont. That week, there were only nine players who finished under par, period. 
Miller himself was over par coming into the last round. He needed every bit of that 63 to finish at five under and win by a shot. There were only three other players that day who shot below 70. That was Jack Nicklaus, Ralph Johnson. They both had 68s. And Lanny Watkins had a tremendous day himself. He shot a 65. But everybody else was in the 70s at best. And when you consider the pressure and the toughness of the course, it is almost mind-blowing what Johnny Miller accomplished that day. And by all indications, the USGA did not like it. And they were going to make sure things were very different the next year at Wingfoot. Now, I say all that with a slight disclaimer, because there's a man named Sandy Tatum, who at the time was the chairman of the championship committee. He later became the USGA executive director. Uh, it was an incredibly powerful figure. This is the guy who, for instance, negotiated the TV deals with ABC and later NBC. He is a power broker in every sense of the word. And that year, 74, he was largely responsible for overseeing the course setup at Winged Foot. Again, this is a year after Miller 63, but Tatum always insisted that what happened there at Wingfoot was not a reaction to Oakmont. Sam Wyman of Golf Digest wrote a story about it, and he told him, quote, that was not in any shape or form on my mind when I went through the setup at Wingfoot, end quote. And he was always consistent with that. You see those quotes, you know, over time, there are people going back and writing about this and, you know, interviewing him, and he's always saying the same thing. This is not about Johnny Miller. This is not about Oakmont. The thing is, nobody else believed him, least of all the players. They thought, almost to a man, that this was massive retaliation and that Miller's 63 was the instigating act of aggression that led to this. Dick Schapp, the reporter who, if you're my age, you remember him as the venerable host of the ESPN TV show, The Sports Reporters. I would watch that every weekend as a kid. He wrote a book called The Massacre at Winged Foot. Subtitle is The U.S. Open Minute by Minute. And you should take that subtitle by, you know, face value if you ever get your hand on this book. He very literally wrote a whole book with time-stamped entries taking you through the minutes of the entire week, Monday to Sunday. There are some really, really good anecdotes in there. The amount of on-the-ground research is very impressive. He actually used, I think, a dozen or so journalists to compile this book. I'm not sure how he got them to do that, but it is a wonderful portrait of golf as it existed in the early 70s. It might lack a little bit of big picture storytelling in terms of being a, you know, capital G great book, but it is a treasure trove of research or, you know, if you're just a fan of the history of the game. And this book is hard to get today, by the way. I want to thank Roger Beale for sending it to me. And Dick Schapp has a chapter which the title makes me laugh out loud. It's the second chapter in the book. And the chapter title is Johnny Miller was his 63 really necessary. And Chap writes in that chapter, quote, Now Miller, the defending champion, finds himself cast in an unfamiliar role. He looks like a central casting hero, tall, lean, and fair-haired, with a smile that would melt Ben Hogan. But at winged foot, he is, in the eyes of his fellow pros, unquestionably a villain. He is being blamed for the new tees at winged foot. He is being blamed for the new bunkers, also for the new trees. He is being held responsible for the slope of the greens, for the impossible positioning of the pins, and if the wind should blow, Miller will be held accountable for that, too. He goes on. Quote, Miller committed an unpardonable sin in 1973. With his 63 at Oakmont, he shamed the United States Golf Association, which does not believe in scores more than two or three strokes below par. As a direct result of Miller's transgression, many of his fellow pros fully believe the USGA decided to transform winged foot from a menace into a monster. 
end quote. As a quick side note, I found it funny, and again, this is probably a generational thing, but it was funny to me to hear Miller described as this blonde golden boy, because a lot of us know him, you know, as the by turns hilarious, curmudgeonly, stubborn old broadcaster who was the furthest thing from a kind of young idol that you could think of. And that was part of his brilliance in the booth, as John Feinstein wrote in his book, Open, Miller is one of the few players of his time who went into the broadcasting booth and immediately stopped trying to be anyone's friend. He was so honest and unsparing that he spent his entire career basically making golfers mad. But anyway, this narrative about winged foot being a kind of revenge was starting as early as Monday that week. Shap quotes Lee Trevino, who was always colorful, as saying the following in a practice round, quote, Goddamn USGA's mad at us for what we did at Oakmont last year. We burnt that one because it rained, made the greens hold. They ain't taking no chances this time. They got the grass here too goddamn high. End quote. And I want to reemphasize the winning score was five under at Oakmont. Trevino saying, you know, we burnt that one is not very accurate. Trevino himself was only two under. You know, this was not by any measure embarrassing for the USGA or the course or anybody. But again, massive retaliation. This is a border skirmish being met with a nuclear bomb. Hubert Green, in a Golf Digest oral history, said that the members at Winged Foot were adamant that nobody was going to do to their course what they had done to Oakmont. And they basically gave Sandy Tatum carte blanche to toughen it up. Chap says that those members were placing huge bets that nobody would break 280 for the tournament, 280 being even par. And Tom Weisskopf, before the tournament began, called it a, quote, typical knee-jerk reaction by the USGA, And Johnny Miller himself said that the USGA denied it, but years later it started leaking out that it was in response to what I did at Oakmont. Oakmont was supposed to be the hardest course in America. But, as Weinman pointed out here in Golf Digest, if you're on Tatum's side, and that side is, you know, this wasn't a reaction to Johnny Miller, you can look at history. It is not new for the US Open to be hard. The same tricks we know and love today, or know and hate, depending on your perspective, were already around back then. Talking about narrow fairways, high rough, fast greens, you know, turn a couple par fives into par fours. This is the drill. I mean, these are people who, the USGA, who have always wanted this to be the most difficult test in golf. To the point that there used to be an endurance element. They used to play the last 36 holes on the same day. It almost killed Ken Venturi in 1964. He was suffering from heat exhaustion at Congressional to the point that doctors told him not to go back out for the afternoon, the last 18. He did it anyway, and he won. But that shows you what the USGA has always been about. And if you're just looking at the big picture, you know, winning scores through the years, you wouldn't pinpoint this as any kind of being turning point. By 1980, there will be more winners who scored even lower than Miller. But in the microcosm, you have to remember that Miller's round became instantly famous. And for the next seven years, at least, nobody is going to touch his 72-hole score. And it's interesting to me, even in Tatum's quotes, when he's denying it, he does mention, and this happens more than once, he mentions that somebody left the water on at Oakmont by mistake before the final round, which made the course softer. And what he means by that is to say the 63 was almost accidental. It normally wouldn't happen. But if you're reading his mind, you might almost say he gives himself away by doing that because he's still talking about Oakmont, about how irregular it was. And it almost seems inevitable, looking at it that way, that it had to be on his mind at winged foot. But we don't know for certain 
And unfortunately, we have to leave it a little ambiguous as to, you know, direct cause and effect. We are not privy to whatever private conversations were held. All we really know is that one year, a man shot the lowest score in major championship history at what was supposed to be the sternest test of professional golf. That was one year, and you think back to the words of John Foster Dulles. Remember, he said, A potential aggressor must know that he cannot always prescribe battle conditions that suit him. And the very next year at Winged Foot, to put it mildly, the battle conditions would not suit the players. To put it not so mildly, it was a mugging. Intentional or not, this looked an awful lot like massive retaliation. Okay, guys, it is U.S. Open week. Officially, I'm pumped. You're pumped. But what else is this week? It's Father's Day this coming Sunday. Whether you want to hint to your wife or your kids, or you're just thinking about your own dad himself, Golf Digest Plus makes for the perfect Father's Day gift for both the player and the fan. And... It's the gift that keeps on giving. New issues of the magazine in your mailbox all year long. All of our digital stories completely unlocked. You get access to our Places to Play course library, which will help you plan that guy's golf trip down the line. Access to our Golf Ball Hot List. That'll help you find the perfect golf ball for your game. And you even get access to our Build Your Own Bag feature. That'll help you identify must-have club for your bag but that's enough of the highlights if you're listening to this podcast you know it's a no-brainer for dad this father's day and the best part is you don't gotta run out and do any last-minute shopping you can go to golfdigest.com plus again that's golfdigest.com plus and buy your dad the gift of golf digest One fifty-three, thirteen over par, made the cut. Among the missing, Lee Trevino, Billy Casper, and Tony Jackman. I'm Shane Ryan. This is Local Knowledge, and the story we are telling today is a simple one in some sense. It is the story of one of the most difficult major championships ever played. The West Course at Wingfoot Golf Club is one of the toughest courses, period, in the entire world. Tiger Woods, when asked where he ranked it, he said it was either number one or two. The other contender, interestingly enough, being Oakmont. And it's located, as we said, in Mamaroneck, Westchester County, not too far from New York City. It's a very wealthy area of the country. You know, this is a private course in A.W. Tilling Gas design. Today it measures 7,400 yards. But in 1974, actually, it was just under 7,000 yards. That was plenty, though. Keep in mind the vast difference in distance in the game then. It was opened in 1923, and the people behind it were members of the New York Athletic Club. That is a very famous amateur sports organization located in Midtown Manhattan, close to Central Park. And the NYAC was a foundational club for amateur sports in the U.S. Uh, very well organized. These are the people who held the first U.S. championships in sports like boxing, wrestling, track and field. They have sent members to every single Summer Olympics except 1980 in Moscow. Those games were boycotted by the U.S. And the idea behind it was always that this was a men's club to promote manly sports. Like a lot of places back then, their record on inclusion is not great. They didn't have women until the late 80s. This was a very waspish organization in the early days. And even up to 1980, they didn't have a black athlete on their teams. They also excluded Jewish men. On that note, for those of you like me who are Woody Allen fans, very early in his career when he did a lot of stand-up, 
he had this absurdist kind of joke about a Jewish couple who were dressed up as a moose being accidentally shot and mounted on the walls of the New York Athletic Club. But the joke was on the club because they weren't supposed to be Jewish people in there. Uh, much funnier when he tells it. You'll have to trust me on that one if you haven't heard it. But the point is, this is a very exclusive club, private, invite only. And so you're dealing with the elites of New York City in a lot of ways. The people who belong to that club were known as NIACers, using that NYAC acronym. And at a certain point, they decided they wanted their own golf course. So that is how the Winged Foot Project started. It ended up that the NYAC sort of ended up disassociating from that, but the members went ahead anyway. And the logo for the athletic club was a tribute to the Greek god Hermes, who was said to be, you know, among other things, the god of sports and athletics. And that logo was a foot with a wing on it. So when these NYAC members started their own club in Mamoranek, they kept the logo and they named their club Winged Foot. By 1929, just six years after opening, it was already hosting its first U.S. Open. Probably a very good indicator there of the influence and money that exists in the club. And just to put a fine point on it, on the prestige of the place, take a look at their list of head pros sometime. It is impressive up and down, but the two most famous are Craig Wood and Claude Harmon. And from 1938 to 1977, almost 40 years, those two guys served as the head pro. One after the other, there was nobody else. Bobby Jones won that first U.S. Open. At winged foot, he finished six over. This was just a year before he captured the calendar Grand Slam in 1930. Winged Foot went on to host the U.S. Amateur, the U.S. Women's Open. The U.S. Open came back in 1959. Billy Casper won that one. He was two over. And 1974 was going to be their third crack at this U.S. Open. And I think to some extent there is this kind of connection between Winged Foot and Oakmont. A rivalry would probably be overstating it a little bit, but there are so many similarities. Both of them are very old courses, very hard courses. If Winged Foot is for the rich people of New York, Oakmont is for the rich people of Pittsburgh. They've hosted a ton of major championships, both of them at this point. But in a lot of cases, Oakmont enjoys just a little bit more esteem. It's a little older. It's hosted more U.S. Opens. It's a little more famous. But both of them put this premium on difficulty. There's a story from Oakmont where a 21-year-old amateur won the club championship one year by about 13 strokes, and he was asked not to play the next year. And the idea was basically that he made it look too easy, and the ethos of Oakmont is not easy. So you can imagine when you have these consecutive opens at Oakmont and Winged Foot, 73 and 74, and Johnny Miller shoots his 63, it makes sense that the members at Winged Foot are eager to prove the merits of their course through its difficulty. And you hear that in Shap's book, in the oral history at Digest I told you about. The members themselves are saying, nobody's going to shoot 63 here. Nobody's going to break 280 on our watch. There's a sense of pride, and they aren't trying to hide it. Ted Horton was the superintendent of the course in 74, and he said later, quote, It was the most consistent, deepest rough in an open until then. We were very proud of the fact that that was the first open that had uniform six-inch rough. End quote. So you see it there again, pride. Tom Callahan, who worked at the time for the Cincinnati Inquirer, later came to work for Golf Digest, he said that the members were, quote, thrilled at the devastation that unfolded. And it fits so neatly into the USGA's plans, the whole thing. If you want to retaliate for Johnny Miller, you have got a you know bright flashing green light from the members. And speaking of Miller and, and what Ted Horton said about the rough, Miller had a quote where he said, I know six inch rough. It varied from six to a legitimate 10 inches. 
There were no world rankings yet in 1974, but you look at the major champions around that time and they are very familiar. You've got Johnny Miller, Tom Weisskopf, Jack Nicholas, of course, Lee Trevino, Gary Player. Those are the guys that would be the five big favorites. Tom Watson is young and up and coming at that point. He's 24. He would go on to win his first major a year later. And the old guard has guys like Arnold Palmer and Sam Snead, who comes that week, is sort of that era's Phil Mickelson character in that he's an older guy, but he still has some game, and he's won every major except the U.S. Open, so he's always a bit of a storyline, too. And this was an era when the players' caddies weren't allowed. They had to use a local caddy from the course who was drawn randomly at the start of the week. Uh, interestingly, I thought the real caddies still showed up to the event. They were in the practice rounds. They were walking with their players, giving them advice, but they couldn't be on the bags, and obviously they couldn't walk with them during the tournament. And it was close to the end of an era in that regard, by the way, in 76, two years later, that was the first U.S. Open where players were allowed to use their own caddies. I think the Masters went a few years after that, but this was all coming to an end. So that week at Wingfoot, that Monday, it became very, very clear that this whole thing was going to be extremely difficult. Players were taking bets with each other that nobody would break 290, which, you know, is 10 over par. They were almost right in that. Only two players ended up doing so. On that first day, on the first hole, practice round, Bert Yancey hit a putt from behind the green that rolled all the way off the front. And Yancey, you get the sense from contemporary quotes, was maybe a little bit of a strange bird. His reaction to that was he marched off the green to go find a USGA official to complain to them. Gary Koch was playing with him in that practice round, and his quote afterward was you know, a, a model of understatement. He said, that's how the week started. Dave Hill, who is kind of a frosty guy, was overheard saying, quote, my head is clear and I don't like the USGA. And speaking of Dave Hill, Frank Hannigan, who was at that point an assistant director of the USGA, who would also become an executive director later, had this quote. He said, Dave Stockton told me last year that it was his last open, but he was the first one to enter this year. Dave Hill has told me that it was his last open six times. He always says, so long, partner. End quote. And what's funny about that is that at the time, the first place money at the U.S. Open was $35,000. And obviously money was different back then. But even then, that wasn't much. There were a dozen events on the PGA Tour with bigger purses. You know, add to that the fact that the players can't use their caddies at this tournament. The USGA is very stingy with complimentary tickets at the time. Accommodations are usually expensive. There's the course difficulty, of course. And, you know, you take all of that, and by itself, this US Open would not be a very alluring tournament for the pros at all. And every year, according to Dick Schapp, the thing that Dave Hill said, that Dave Stockton said, comes from a whole load of players. They say they're never going to do this again. The problem for them is the prestige. The US Open is, of course, massive, it's famous. You happen to win the endorsement money alone is going to far outstrip everything you'd earn on the course. And what ends up happening is that, yeah, obviously all these guys come back. U.S. Open purses are massive now, but it's clear at the time that the USGA knew they had the power and that the power lay in their prestige. So they're almost saying, you know, sure, you can complain, but what are you going to do? Not go to the U.S. Open? And it's interesting also historically to read all these complaints about the setup, how persnickety golfers were because that continues to this day. Everybody remembers Zach Johnson at Shinnecock saying, you know, in that very solemn voice, they've lost the course. 
or Phil Mickelson, you know, putting his ball before it stopped as a kind of protest. All of that has remained a constant through time. And the other thing that has stayed the same is that the fans love it. The players hate the carnage. The fans, they can't get enough of it. A few newspapers in 74 actually did a survey asking, which would you prefer seeing? They were asking the fans, lots of birdies, or would you rather see a struggle? And of course, they wanted a struggle. Because on one hand, it's relatable. It can be a little bit funny. But on the other, there is also something epic about the whole thing. To win after you've fought through the elements and through all that difficulty, that ends up being a richer story for spectators than someone you know winning at 19 under or whatever. And that's the essential conflict that has remained throughout the decades, and in my opinion, part of what makes the U.S. Open so intriguing and so great. And another thing that's at least a little bit amusing is how a lot of the great players react. Tom Watson earlier that week is overheard saying, gee, it's really fun to play the Open. It's the utmost in tough conditions. It really makes you think. Gary Player later said there should be more tournaments, like Wingfoot that year. Jack Nicholas, you know, has his frustrations, but he always embraced the challenge. And you get this sense that, you know, not universally, but, you know, consistently enough to call it a trend, that the really great, tough champions almost respect it when it's really hard. We talked about the members. By Tuesday, there were rumors that more than $100,000 had been bet. Most of it on the fact that, you know, nobody's going to break 280. And Dave Stockton had another great line. He said, quote, if the USGA could put lakes in the middle of every green, they would. And on that Tuesday, as things were shaping up, Charlie Sifford summed up the feelings of most of the field when he said, you let me have 284 and I could stay at home and win. Ain't nobody going to shoot a 63 on this course. And nobody did. As you see the story visually, Hale Irwin at 17, 7 over. Forrest Fesler at 18, 8 over. This putt, 15 feet or more, perhaps a little bit more, is for a f 4, par 4, to remain 8 over, David. He's hit it a little to the right. This is for a bogey 5 to put him in at uh, 9 over, or 289. But by no means out of it. I mean, Over the course of that weekend, you had 167, that was shot by Hubert Green, 268s by Larry Ziegler and Al Guyberger, and 569s, and that was it for the 60s. Eight rounds total, the entire tournament managed to have a score under par. Not eight players, eight rounds. On Monday, there were zero rounds below par, and Gary Player, who had ambitions of winning the calendar Grand Slam that year, was the only one who managed to shoot 70. He took a one-shot lead over Lou Graham and Mike Reeser, and behind him you had a chase pack that included Arnold Palmer, Raymond Floyd, Tom Watson, and 29-year-old Hale Irwin. And now remember, this is the U.S. Open, so there are local qualifiers who are playing. One of them, in fact the worst of them that week, was Bill Erfurth. He was from the Chicago area. He shot an 88 on that first day, and his friends back at home started calling him piano keys because there are 88 keys on a piano and that was actually Erfurth's fifth US Open but after that he stopped trying to qualify call it the winged foot effect maybe it was getting to that point in his career anyway but facing down that mess that difficulty was sort of a fatal blow for him that Thursday may have been the toughest day of all and the signature moment came from Jack Nicholas on the very first hole he played when he left his approach above the hole, about 30 feet, 
barely tapped the ball and watched it roll a good 35 feet past the hole and off the green. Reporters who were there heard him say, what an embarrassing way to start the Open. And for his playing partners, Hubert Green and Jim Colbert, and for those who watched it or heard about it, you couldn't ask for a worse premonition because here is the greatest player of all time, arguably the greatest putter of all time too, and if he's doing that, what are we going to do? Sam Snead had withdrawn just before the tournament, and one of the really unfortunate figures was Bruce Ashworth, his replacement, who had to fly in and play this course without any practice. No surprise, he shot in 82. And all over the course, it was pure carnage, and the media seized on that as the day wore on. It was the big story. And when they asked Sandy Tatum, you know, who again was in charge of the setup, if he was trying to embarrass the players... Tatum came back with an iconic line that you hear now every year at the U.S. Open. It has stood the test of time, and it's kind of a statement of purpose almost for the USGA, generally speaking, in the U.S. Open. He said, quote, We're not trying to embarrass the best players in the world. We're trying to identify them. End quote. And that's a great line. It's, you know, not much solace to the players. But he said some version of it a few times that week. In fact, you know, the the famous one when he's quoted was not the first time he'd said it. He had had a different version of it the day before. So you get the feeling he sensed it was a good line. And if that's true, you know, he was right. Tatum passed away in 2017, and that line is practically immortal. It's outlived him, and, you know, in the world of golf anyway, it seems like it will never go away. And the furor that day was unbelievable. Tatum said later, quote, The atmosphere after the first day was absolutely electric. It was as if somebody had dropped a bomb on the place. The media was very much on it. There was an element of virulent criticism. What really got to me was that they were questioning my motives. There were a lot of media people asking very provocative questions, end quote. Frank Hannigan, the USGA assistant, was less sensitive. He said, quote, I don't care what Sandy said or says. I love seeing them humiliated. It was hilarious. I was stationed in the scoring tent at that time as players finished and signed their cards. I got an earful that week. Players vowed they would never come back. Most of them did. End quote. On Friday, it was not much easier. You had a couple rounds in the 60s this time, but just barely. Johnny Miller took four shots to get out of a bunker on the seventh hole. It almost seems like he had a tin cup situation where he was just stubbornly going at it again and again, you know, four times until he could make it work instead of taking the cautious play. The leading score that day went from Gary Player's even on Thursday to plus three. Player was one of the leaders. He had shot a 73 that day. Another was Arnold Palmer, which, as you can imagine, lit up the galleries. Palmer was past his prime at that point. It had been almost exactly a decade since his last major, but here he was contending on an absolutely unforgiving course. That was very exciting for Arnie's army and all the fans. Raymond Floyd was there, and the fourth person at plus three was Hale Irwin. And Tom Watson had this memory he shared later where he finished on Friday, you know, feeling completely battered, but he was at plus four, just a shot off the lead. And he's in the locker room looking out the window. You can see the 10th and 18th holes. And he's seeing all these scoring standards go by. And what they show are scores like 28 and 29 over par. And he's laughing and thinking, you know, hey, I didn't do half bad. One of those players who ended with an obscenely high score, plus 27, was a young Jay Haas. He made the cut, actually, but he was way down the leaderboard. But the wild part of that was he was the low amateur of the whole tournament. And there was also this phenomenon you see a lot in the U.S. Open where players do well for a little while, but when the wheels come off, man, they really come off. 
I think of it like the coyote in the old Roadrunner cartoons where when he runs off a cliff, he's running on air for a little while, but that only lasts until he looks down. The illusion of safety is suddenly gone and boom, he plummets. Andy Bean had this happen to him. He was a junior in college, an amateur at the time. He was actually tied for the lead after 26 holes. But then he hit a spectator in the mouth of the ball, and after that, the course just got to him. The whole situation got to him. He completely collapsed, finished with a 76 that day, which wasn't terrible, but he was no longer near the lead. And then he went 81-83 on the weekend, ended up finishing second to last among players who made the cut. But as it happened, he was the only other amateur besides Jay Haas to even make the cut. One interesting thing about that second round was that on Thursday night, somebody drove a car across the first green. Seems like it was an accident. You know, somebody in the parking lot getting extremely lost in the dark because there was no huge intent to destroy the green, and they could have if they wanted to. But on Friday morning, there were these tire tracks running right down the middle of the green. This man named George Zeringer, who was on the crew, he was the first one to spot it, and he was the one who mowed it while the superintendent and USGA officials looked on And the minute he was done mowing, you couldn't even tell a car had ever been there. By the time Sandy Tatum came to look, he didn't even believe them that anything had happened. But just to be safe, they put up a sign telling the players, you know, what had happened. There's some car damage. But when the players got to that hole, they couldn't notice anything either. And that's just an indication of how incredibly fast and firm these greens were. You could drive a literal car over them. And once you mowed, nothing had even changed. Saturday comes. Tom Watson is the star of the show. He shoots a 69 while everybody else drops off. Palmer shoots a 73. Player shoots himself right out of the tournament with a 77. Raymond Floyd does even worse with a 78. And only Hale Irwin stays close. He shoots a 71 and he's at plus four. Their positions have reversed now. He's just one behind Watson. But the course and the pressure, all of that was about to get to Tom Watson on Sunday, the final round. That day as it started, he kept losing his shots to the right. That was his typical miss under pressure when he was struggling at that point in his career. And when you do that at winged foot, you are dead in the rough every single time. He lost the lead to Hale Irwin for the first time after the eighth hole. And things got very, very bad on the back nine. He bogeyed 10, he bogeyed 12, he bogeyed 13. And there could be a switch here, you know, if he made this, get his confidence back a little bit because it's hard for a young man with no more experience than Thomas had to keep his confidence in going on well, the ball went down over the left side of the cup. He thought it would curl back just a little bit because the crown is in that vicinity, but he makes bogey himself, and now he's plus nine through 13. 15. He bogeyed 17 and 18-2 to finish, and by the time it was all over, he shot a 79 to finish in a tie for fifth with Jim Colbert and Arnold Palmer. Bert Yancey and Lou Graham each hit that 290 mark, 10 over. But in the end, it came down to this duel, this unlikely duel between Hale Irwin and a man named Forrest Fesler. And Fesler today is not a very familiar name. I certainly hadn't heard of him. But at that time, if you were a golf fan, you would have known him for sure. He was Rookie of the Year on the PGA Tour in 1973. That was a year earlier. And at age 24 in 74, he won his first PGA Tour event, the Southern Open, not long after the Winged Foot U.S. Open. Years later, he would garner a bit of fame for wearing shorts at the U.S. Open for one hole only as a kind of protest against the dress code. But that win in 74, the Southern Open, that would end up being his only win, his only professional win. A serious injury to his left wrist in 76 really hampered his career. But at that moment in time, when here we are in winged foot, 
he was a rising star on the PGA Tour. And Hale Irwin was also relatively young. He was just 29 years old then. He'd won a couple PGA Tour events at that point, and he had been slowly rounding into form at majors too. He was top 10 at the PGA a year earlier for the first time, finished T4 at the Masters earlier that spring, and now here he was on Sunday with a chance to become legendary, to become a major winner. He'd had a dream beforehand that he was going to win. He had these vivid dreams, which happened to him now and again. Oftentimes he would see it, you know, like it was just like reality. He would remember it with perfect clarity. And he had it that week. His caddy was a 16-year-old kid drawn out of a hat named Peter McGarry. McGarry showed up the first day with hiking boots on. He left tracks all over the greens. Another day he was late because he was trying to get a peek at Arnold Palmer while he could. Irwin gave him apparently a little talking to then, you know, Nothing too serious, just a little mild, you know, get yourself together kind of thing. But overall, it was funny because Hale Irwin was fine with that whole caddy situation. He didn't have a regular caddy, even on tour. And he was the kind of player who did yardages, who did clubs. He did all of that stuff all on his own. And he was okay to grind. He was okay with adversity, which is, you know, a mindset that is very much needed at Winged Foot. His perspective kind of matched the course. He was telling himself on that Sunday... Avoid the big mistake. You know, leave yourself 20-foot uphill putts. And all day he was watching Tom Watson, his playing partner, implode. And meanwhile, Forrest Fesler, he's grinding that day too. But he's got a completely different mindset. His mindset that day was to try like hell to stay inside the top 16 so he could come back the next year. And he could also make the Masters. In photographs of him then, you can see he had a yellow shirt. He had these brown and yellow plaid pants, very 70s. He had a mustache. He looked a little bit like a smaller, slimmer Matthew McConaughey when you look at those photos. And there came a point in the back nine when suddenly he started to realize, you know, top 16 was a given. He had a chance to actually win this thing. And on the back nine, maybe it was nerves or whatever. He couldn't hit a green to save his life, but he was scrambling like a madman, making pars on 15, 16, and 17 from off the green, which is remarkable in any circumstances. That winged foot is, you know, practically impossible at that point. And at the start of that stretch going into the 15th hole, he was three shots behind Irwin, but he didn't realize behind him that Irwin made bogey on 15 and 16, which reduced the lead to one shot. He joked later that if he had known, he might have been even more nervous. As it was, he made bogey on 18. He missed a 15-footer to finish at plus nine, while Hill Irwin had two holes left and he was at plus seven. And when Fesler came off that 18th green, you know, he still has a chance to win the tournament, but all he could say was, you know, this course really takes it out of you mentally. It just does things to your mind. Back on 17 with Irwin, disaster almost struck when he drove his ball into the left rough. He had to pitch out, but then he had a wedge in. He made a terrific up and down. Hit a 12-foot putt that broke about two feet, according to eyewitness observers. Then on 18, he managed to hit a straight drive, and he had a two-iron left on his approach. And he hit what might have been the, you know, the great pressure shot of the entire tournament. He pured the thing, hit it to about 20 feet, finished with a two putt, and he was the U.S. Open champion. That is the United States Open champion. And there goes the ball with a forward pass for Colorado. I think somebody out there should have called for a fair catch. His final score of plus seven was the second highest U.S. Open winning total in 50 years, the only one higher came in 1963 in Brookline when Julius Boros won. And that week, it was because of the weather. It was completely atrocious. This score was all about the course. And even the winner wasn't spared. This is what Irwin said afterward. Quote, 
I've come away bloodied, bruised, and kicked, but I've enjoyed Wingfoot. It's been good to me. If you didn't come away from the West Course and feel you had been tested to the fullest, you were missing something. End quote. Irwin would go on to win two more U.S. Opens, one of them when he was 45. He's still the oldest U.S. Open winner. Winged Foot has since hosted three more U.S. Opens, and two of those, including DeChambeau's win, the winner was actually under par. And since 1974, since that year, no winner has ever had a higher score than Irwin's plus seven. In fact, there have only been seven U.S. Opens since where the winning score was over par. Which, as we said earlier, has not stopped players from being upset at the USGA or from complaining, and it hasn't stopped the U.S. Open from being thought of as an incredibly hard test. But it does show you what a heady confluence the golf world saw that one year. A combination of Johnny Miller's 63, an impossible course, with a ravenous membership and a USGA official willing to inflict pain, all of it combining to create what was the most brutal major championship ever played. If you believe this is an act of revenge, it makes me think of the old saying that when you set out on a mission of revenge, dig two graves... Well, this time the USGA dug an entire graveyard, one spot for everybody in the field. This is the kind of tournament where the course might be the real winner and the human winner is more like the best survivor. And yet, there is a moment when Hale Irwin is walking to the green on 18. His ball is 20 feet from the cup. All the fans are packed around the green. Everybody who's been watching Palmer and Trevino and all the great champions of the day. And Irwin knows he's going to win. And walking up that fairway, he holds his hands up, triumphantly, but also a little bit weary. In Dick Shap's words, like a victorious boxer. And the place just erupts. They know what he's done. He knows what he's done. And even if you weren't there, even if you haven't seen it on YouTube and you're just hearing about it, you can almost see it, can't you, in your mind's eye. And for all the talk about the difficulty, the punishing course, and the USGA going after the players, in that moment, sure, you can rehash it all, but you come back to one thought. And that thought is, doesn't all of this struggle, all of this carnage, when you see what it takes to win, isn't it all worth it? And doesn't it produce one hell of a champion? In the legends of golf, because your name goes alongside some of the greatest names in the history of it. Oh, that's, that pleases me to no end. I, I, I'm just as happy as I can be, Keith. Our congratulations to you. I'm sure you'll be a great U.S. Open champion. Well, I, I'll certainly try. Uh... The men that have worn the U.S. Open crown before me have all been uh, extremely good uh, players and very fine gentlemen. I only hope I can duplicate that. Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. We use two songs for the music today, Living in My Memories M by Lobo Loco and Independence by Serge Pavkin. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to Local Knowledge wherever you get your podcasts. And we've got two others for you to check out, too. First is Golf Digest's weekly podcast, The Loop. And we have a new podcast on golf instruction hosted by Luke Curdenine, and that's called Golf IQ. Both of those are out now. You can subscribe to both. And thank you very much for listening. Have a wonderful day.